people believing events are more predictable before the fact than after. And this is a, a big problem in investing because it leads to us being overconfident. Hello, risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from 80 Stotts Academy. And I'm here today continuing my discussions with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story in episode 645. Larry has a deep understanding of the world of academic research and investing and especially risk. Today, we're going to discuss two chapters in his book, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. Mistake number three is the first one we're going to cover, which is do you believe events are more predictable after the fact than before? And number four, do you extrapolate from small samples and trust your intuition? Larry, take it away. Yeah, let's begin with this issue of people believing events are more predictable before the fact than after. And this is a, a big problem in investing because it leads to us being overconfident because we think we know what the outcome is. And we always say, I knew it was going to happen, right? So the example I like to use to help with this is there was a famous Super Bowl U.S. championship game for the National Football League where the Seattle Seahawks were needing a touchdown at the end of the game. They got down to, I think it was the three-yard line and first and goal, and they had the single best running back in the National Football League, a fellow named Marshawn Lynch. Also happened to have a good quarterback named Russell Wilson. Everybody was thinking that they're just, they've got enough time, had about, a, I think it was a minute or 40 seconds. They could run several plays. They had the timeouts and they would just hand the ball to Lynch three times and they would hammer it in. On the very first play, they call a pass and it gets intercepted. All of the analysts and people are screaming what this is the dumbest coach's decision ever. And everybody watching was probably saying, I know what they should have run, right? Well, a group of cybermaticians, cyber mathematicians, did the actual analysis, right? And looked at the historical evidence inside, say, the five-yard line, first and goal, what had happened. And they had found that three times Marshawn Lynch had fumbled the ball and never in the red zone, even just in that area, that inside the, near the goal line, had Russell Wilson thrown an interception. So the odds clearly, based on the long-term historical evidence, suggested you try the pass. Now, and, and, also, be, and also, just to add, I would expect that the opponent would definitely anticipate that run. That that was going yeah, to be a run. That's what you, you would, would think, right? Be anticipating. Yeah, they'd yep. be lining up. We've got to stop the run. That's almost certainly coming. Turns out that one of the defenders made a great play, stepped in front of the receiver, intercepted it, and they lose the game. The cyber mathematician showed that the coaching decision was the absolutely right one, based on the statistics. But people are certain, and then they'll say, I knew it, they should have run, right? And when they get it wrong, 
they never recall the events that they got wrong. They only remember the events where they say, I knew it. They never should have done that, right? So let's, the example I use in my book on the investment side is it's 1989 and Japanese stocks have dramatically outperformed U.S. stocks over the last decade. The Japanese real estate, you know, supposedly the land under the Imperial Palace was worth more than all the real estate in California. Japanese companies were taking over the world. We had had like one semiconductor plant left in the U.S. They were buying up Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach. And the chairman of Sony appears on the cover of either Forbes or Fortune. And it's their Japan Inc. is taking over. The next 20, 30 years, the U.S. far outperforms and everyone's thinking, oh, I knew it, right? Well, nobody pretty much knew it, maybe at the time, but we credit ourselves. And when you do that, that leads to overconfidence. So when I talk to people and they tell me this is what's going to happen, I said, do yourself a favor. Let's not act now because the evidence says that's not likely to be the right thing. You're likely acting based upon irrational fears. You don't know the history. You have confirmation bias. You read some article from some crazy lunatic who's writing that the dollar is not going to be the world's reserve currency because of X, Y, and Z. And you happen to think about those things. So you decide that he's right and you ignore all the evidence, for example, that the Chinese yuan is 2% of world trade. It's not even a free traded currency. There's no depth of the Chinese market. And there's no way tomorrow it could become, or even next decade, that the dollar would lose its status as mm. the world's reserve. Mm. There's no other good candidate that really meets that criteria. But your confirmation bias will then jump in, right? So I tell them the cure for this bias of believing facts are like inevitable, you know, events are inevitable, you think, before the fact when they're even far from certain, let alone inevitable, is to start to keep a diary. Write down when you're watching a sporting event, whether it's Tiger Woods, will he make that putt from 20 feet? What's the play the coach should call? You know, it's 10 seconds left. Should you pass it in? to the center or have the guy shoot the three-point play, write down what you think will happen and compare it with the results after the fact. And that will virtually surely convince you that you don't know the future any better than anyone else. Your crystal ball is just as cloudy and you should stop trying to make forecasts based upon your views because you think events are predictable. So this is a, uh... You know, the benefit of that taking notes is that you go back and you look at prior decisions where you realize because you wrote it down, you realize that you are actually wrong. And now that's you exactly back, right. You look back a few times and realize, oh, yeah, I guess I wasn't, you know, as right as I thought. Yeah, there's a uh, related to that. I tell people whenever they hear a forecast from some guru, the only reason they'll pay attention is because it happens to agree with their preconceived notions. So they're worried about inflation and they see some commercial. We've seen blitz over the U.S. over the last decade mm. often of the 
Federal Reserve printing dollars and the inflation is going to run away and the dollar is going to collapse and all this stuff. So, you know, it plays on their fears. That's exactly what they know they're doing to get you to panic. There's always somebody trying to sell you some product you shouldn't buy. And you have to understand that, right? So the way to cure yourself is write down that diary, write it down every time on other events related to whatever it might be, an election result or, you know, a sporting event, especially, right? And the old get cured. So Jason Swig had a great quote. He said, when you ever hear a prediction, make sure you ask to see all their prior predictions, mm. but you could be certain pigs will fly before you'll ever get them. Yeah, yeah. Jason hasn't come on my worst investment ever podcast yet, and I'm, I'm trying to get him on, but- He'd be a not, great guest. Yeah, and uh, just to take a step back here for the audience, what really talking about in this particular chapter is the concept of hindsight bias. And yeah. so I went to uh, Wikipedia thinking, well, is it the most trusted name in news? Not really, but you know, it's not bad. So let's see what Wikipedia says. It says, hindsight bias, also known as the I knew it all along phenomena, is the common tendency for people to perceive past events as having been more predictable than they were. People often believe that an event has occurred after an event has occurred, they would have predicted or perhaps even would have known with a high degree of certainty what the outcome of the event would have been before the event occurred. Now, hindsight bias may cause distortions of memories of what was known or believed before an event occurred and is a significant source of overconfidence regarding an individual's ability to predict the outcome of future events. But last thing's kind of fun. In America, they call it 2020 vision when you can see clearly from 20 feet. And so what that turns into is an idiom that for the non-native English speakers may not understand. 2020, we say, Hindsight is always 2020, meaning you see things so clearly after you've experienced them. So any thoughts on that and how we can... Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the problem. We don't... They've actually done... Psychologists, behavioral finance people have done studies and they ask people what their prediction is of an event. And then they ask them after the fact, what their prediction was. Did they get it right or wrong? And the amazing data shows far more people said they get it right than actually did get it right. They recall thinking it was sure to happen, but they were wrong. Even people who are shown their actual results and said, here, you said this. And then, no, I could not have said that. They argue when they're in their own handwriting, there's the data. That's how powerful this hindsight bias can be. I've read many books on behavioral finance, and there was this one story of this woman, literally she was ready to get in a fight because she was convinced there was no way. That's how powerful our memory, our mind works, trying to protect us, ourselves from feeling stupid. We like to feel good that we're smart. But the problem is it just leads to overconfidence, which leads to taking concentrated risks, not diversifying and trading too much. And men are much worse about mm. those traits than women are. Yeah. That's also, the testosterone effect. Yeah. It's also interesting about just history in general. You know, you have two issues in relation to history. 
The first one is, you know, as we always say, the winner writes, writes history. history. And I remember listening to one of my favorite rap stars in the old days, Public Enemy, and they said, history is his story. Yeah, yeah, that's a good line. Yeah. And I thought that was great. But the point is, first, you have people that want to rewrite history. If, if Let's just say that a politician meddles in something or a group of politicians and they actually cause a crash. You know, they cause a flood of money going into a particular area and it pushes up prices of everything and then bubble ensues and then everything crashes. You think those politicians are going to write the story as, oh, shoot, we caused that. No. Well, a great example of that is the Democratic administration led by Robert Reich and others, Chuck Schumer, and, and they pushed policies that led to easy lending and housing, forcing banks to make loans. They, the typical, when I was growing up, you had to put down 30%. You only could get a 70% loan. By the time I got married and had kids, it had to be 80%. By the time of the just before the great financial <clears throat> crisis. Some loans you could even borrow 100% and finance the expense of the mortgage. So you're really borrowing 102 or 3%. And then when it crashed, they said, oh, no, we didn't have anything to do with that. It was the bankers. That wasn't a problem. Yep. And how did they do it? They did it not through pushing the banks to change their lending standards. They did it through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, requiring them to take on the yep. higher level of risky assets, which everybody in the whole world knows that that requires, that's going to bring on additional losses. So what was remarkable about that was that they were able to bring on billions and billions of dollars of losses yeah. that eventually, ultimately, the taxpayer has to bear in one way or another. But they could do it in plain sight, but hidden. Yep, exactly. And, and there's a great that lasted until trees don't grow to the sky and you print a lot of money and keep interest rates suppressed and encourage people to take too much risk and lever up. Eventually, you pay the piper because interest rates have to go up because inflation picks up and then the whole bubble gets exposed. As Warren Buffett said, you know, when the tide goes out, you know who was swimming naked. Right? Yeah. And um, a great book on that was by, I think it was Peter Williamson called Hidden in Plain Sight, where he was on the, the committee that, that wrote the history of it. Unfortunately, he was one of the only dissenting voices that said, no, it wasn't banks going crazy. It was the incentive system that was set up. And so that, that's a great book. It also reminds me why I never liked the movie The Big Short, because they never, ever talked about any of the incentives behind the scenes by the government that were happening that sparked the fire. Of course, once you spark a massive fire, eventually in the top of the bubble or at parts of the bubble, you're gonna be incentivizing really bad behavior. And so there's definitely a lot of bad behavior to be you know, cast, but it's a fascinating one. So my point is, is that first you have the problem that you have people that wanna write history you know, as best that they can so that it's his story, as we said from the public enemy, lyrics. But the second thing is that now, even if you have the right history, the correct history of it, it's easy to misjudge it when you look back at how you understood that. So that's a great one. We reference Gary Belsky here and his book, I think in this chapter, you mentioned about his book of why smart yeah, people make very good book. big money mistakes. Excellent book. Gary was a guest. He was on episode 545. And his episode was called Long-Term Patience is the Key to Success in Investing. So 
for those people that want to hear Gary's story, because he's also a smart person and he makes mistakes too. There it is. Yeah, Our, but the key to long-term success is having a deep understanding of history and not being subject to recency bias. And the next mistake we're about to embark yep. on discussing. Yeah, so that's interesting because you've got hindsight bias where you go back and you know you think you were smart, and then you got recency bias that's pulling you to to act based upon what's coming up. But let's move into mistake number four. Do you extrapolate from small samples and trust your intuition? Yeah. So there's a great experiment run by some of the leading behavioral finance people. And you're asked to judge the following. Should you choose jar A or jar B? And you're told both of them have two thirds of the jar is filled with marbles that are red and one third is white. Okay. In the first jar from A, you're only allowed to pick five. And when the person picked five, he draws four, or 80% of them are red. Second jar, he's told he can pull 30, and he pulls 20 that are red, so two-thirds. Remember, you're told that two-thirds of the sample is, in both cases, you know, could, could be. Which one are you more sure of? Actually, you're told, I'm sorry, in one of the jars, there's two thirds of them are red. Mm. Now you're asked, which jar are you more confident in choosing is the one that has two thirds red. Do you choose the one where you chose 80% or you choose the one where it was only 67%? I think for most people, it's hard just even understanding those percentages probably that are doing it, but tell us how it, how it works. Yeah, well, clearly 80% is a higher number. And mm. so a lot of people, the majority of people, when they take that test, say, I'm more confident that jar A is the one with the two thirds than jar B. Mm. But anyone who understands statistics knows that you have to do a test of statistical significance. And when you have a very small sample, the T stat, may not be significant. A larger sample is much more reliable. So for example, you could flip a coin and you might flip five heads in a row and think, oh, this coin is biased. But if you flipped it a thousand times, you're gonna run across many episodes where there are five heads or five tails. That's just the odds of that happening. So you have to understand statistics. Now, what does that mean when it comes to investing? People judge by small samples, typically recent ones. <laughs> so you combine these things. So for example, okay, we saw that from 97, 8, 9, roughly, those three years, and most of it was 98 and 99, small value stocks dramatically underperformed. It was all the growth market because of the dot-com bubble. So people judging by that small sample and recency bias, okay, and the stories of this time is different, didn't look at the long-term historical evidence, which said, yes, over any three-year period, maybe, there's maybe a 20% chance that large growth and other growth will outperform small value. 
At five years, maybe it's 15%. At 20 years, it's virtually zero. Mm. Maybe it's 3%. So there's always a chance that growth would outperform small value, but the longer the period, the less likely. But people trusted the fact that this small sample and recency bias and reading the stories and then maybe confirmation bias you know, they read stories this time, it's different, growth's going to outperform, it's a new era, it's dot-com, and internet is changing the world. They then make that bet after, of course, the fact. Now they're paying high prices, and therefore you're virtually doomed to get poor returns over the long term. Maybe the next year or so it might continue, but eventually trees don't grow to sky, and high prices predict low future returns. So the problem is here, you have to know your history. Whenever you see a small sample, you want to look at the long-term data. Let me give you one other example Mm. we point out in the book. From I think it is the 25-year period, 66 through 90, one-month CDs outperform the S&P. Should that be your expectation? Of course not. Right, because one month CDs are totally riskless. You have no inflation risk. If you stay within the FDIC limits, you have no credit risk and risk and expected return must be related. And over the long term, the stock market has probably outperformed one month CDs by maybe 7%. Mm. But you can have a period, forget three years or five, you know. It could be 10 or 25. Japan has underperformed for the last 32 years, 33 years now. But Warren Buffett knows that that is a result of one, Japanese prices were super elevated in 1989 and were doomed to deliver low returns. So he wasn't buying then. He wants to buy when everyone else is panic selling and everyone else has now abandoned Japanese stocks and they're trading at incredibly low PEs. And he's now saying, I'm buying Japanese stocks. Well, most people aren't doing that because they want to buy after something has done well. So the key is you really have to know your history. Only look at data that's over the very long term. And remember Swedro's dictum, which is this. When it comes to investing in risk assets, three years is a very short time. Five years is still a pretty short time. And 10 years is still likely nothing more than noise. You need much longer periods. And the key to successful investing, as Warren Buffett said, it's not intelligence, it's patience. Because investing is simple, it's just not easy because it's tough to control our behavior because we're subject to all these mistakes that we're talking about simply because we're human beings. So the biggest value of any investment advisor is one, providing the investment history so you can make an informed decision and then controlling the investor's urge to act when doing nothing other than staying with your well-thought-out plan that anticipates bad periods of bad performance, and it's highly diversified. So you're not concentrated in the one asset class that's doing poorly for, say, 10 years. Mm. That's where the true value of an advisor. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. If you're a financial advisor, the value is, number one, understanding your history. And I would say number two is 
the kind of emotional discipline, we're going to assume that you've built a diversified portfolio for your clients, but then it's that emotional stability to be able to help prevent you know them from doing some panic. I want to highlight episode 62, Jeremy Newsom, one of my guests many years ago. He basically, his story was interesting because he he was interested in stocks and he borrowed some money from his father when he was a young guy and he invested in a particular stock and it went up and he made a lot of money. It was exciting. And he sold out. He Worst got thing that ever happened to him, probably. Exactly. He got the cash. Dad and, you know, and Jeremy were happy. And then Jeremy got into the idea of silver and he got obsessed with silver as a young guy. And so he was looking at it and he eventually convinced his father to give him more money. Father gave him more money and Jeremy went into silver and silver, as Jeremy say, I invested 15 minutes from the peak. Uh, and along with uh, Bunker Hunt. Yes, exactly. The Hunt brothers, when they uh, tried to corner the silver market back in the yeah. 80s or 90s, I can't remember when that was. It was 80s or late yeah. 70s, right around yep. there. Drove so, silver up to 50 bucks and then it collapsed. Almost took down the U.S. banking system, by the way, because the major banks were all big lenders and the Fed had to be called in to try to keep the markets calm, provide liquidity for the big banks. Yeah. Anyway, so he convinces dad, if dad put in the money, the silver started collapsing. But to make matters worse, he had found out something about some derivative instrument on silver. <laughs> And the end result of his derivative instrument was that he lost 100% of his money in his second trade. And what made this story very memorable is, you remember where he got the money, Larry? His father. Yeah, right. And it turns out his father gave him 100% of his retirement portfolio. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that is why Jeremy's story is so powerful for the listeners and for all of us to remember what they were doing was that they were looking at a small sample size, and that sample size in this case was one, which is the smallest you can have. And it was one experience of a great you know, experience. And as you said, when I started telling the story, like that's the worst thing that can happen. And so let's talk about sample size for just a moment. You've mentioned about you know, three years is too short, five years is too short, 10 years is too short. But let's just talk about, I guess, the big theme that we want to focus on for this is to help people to realize that it's not so much that we've got to get some large sample, it's that your conclusion is just probably wrong. And if you can start with that and say, well, you're extrapolating a small sample into something big, we call it sometimes in, in the logical fallacies, we call it hasty generalization, where you take a specific case, a specific story, my friend lost his job, therefore the economy is a disaster, that you, you've got to really focus in on the fact that you're likely to try to extrapolate from a small thing that may be visceral and may be exciting and you think you've got it, but you've got to, you know, the next question is kind of what is a reasonable sample size? And I just wanted to ask you this because you've got so much experience with research. And that is like when people are doing, we talk about something statistically significant. We talk about whether the sample size is the right size. And there's a lot of judgment in there. I always thought the statistic was very, very clear, but there is still judgment in there. But from your perspective, what does it mean about statistical significance or when something's not significant? And what could people learn about? Yeah. That? That's a really great question, as they say on Bloomberg all the time, <laughs> if you watch Bloomberg, yeah. right? So here's the thing you need to know about statistics, right? The standard 
is typically for statistical significance is a 5% odds of it being a random or lucky outcome and 95% confident you're right. It's not 100%, right? So you have to admit if the T-stat is two, that means there's roughly a 95%. Actually, I think it's 1.96, but let's call it two. Mm. All right. Now, at one in 100, the T-stat is three. So you can be more confident, right, of that, right? But still, there's the risk that that will be the one in 100-year flood. So one thing you want to think of as an investor, even if you have a T-stat of 1%, that father never should have lent that money with that possibility of that kind of loss because there is still a risk that he could get wiped out. And therefore, it's okay if you want to make that bet, take $1 or $2 or 1% or 2% of your portfolio and like you might take $1,000, depending upon your net worth, to Las Vegas, go to the casino and treat it as luck, you know, an event, and you're having a good time. And it's like going to the racetrack, right? When I was a young kid growing up, when I was in college, I worked hard. I, you know, I had to get a job after school so I could go out on dates. And, and so I still enjoyed going to the racetrack maybe three or four times a year with my friends. And I would bet two bucks a race because that was a lot of money. And that way I could never lose more than about 20 bucks, including my entrance fee. And some of my friends I thought were crazy. They'd bet five bucks or 10. And if they won, they might bet 20 or 30 using their winnings. And when the horses were coming down, you know, to the finish line, were they screaming, do you think, having bet 20 bucks any louder than I was having bet two? No, we both got the same excitement and fun. So I tell them, if you need excitement in your life from the stock market, fine, take one or two percent of your money and play. Don't expect to win because all the evidence says the odds favor you losing. But if that's how you get enjoyment out of your life, it's entertainment and treat it as that. And the other hand, I say sort of in tongue in cheek is that if you need the stock market for excitement in your life, you might want to think about getting another life. Now, I do say that <laughs> with, with tongue-in-cheek there. So the key thing here is to understand, if you get a T-stat of two, now there's a 5% chance of something being random. Mm -hmm. So you can't be all that confident. You might be willing to allocate some of your money to a strategy, but not all. Nice. But here's the thing. What if the research that came up with that T-stat actually tried 20 different experiments using 20 different metrics? And you're just using, you're looking at the outcome of one. You're only looking at the one that happened to work when the others failed. Now there's a problem because that could have been the lucky outcome, right? And Nothing works, but that one was random. 19 out of the 20 with very similar things didn't work. So what you want to do in our book, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, Andy Birkin and I created a list of criteria that you should have or insist on before you make any investment or bet. And that should be that there's uh, evidence of a premium for taking the risk. That evidence is persistent across 
economic regime. So in good times and bad, it's not just we look at, say, the period, say, 1981 through 99, when we had 20 years of economic growth and no recessions, you know, I think. You look at period where you have booms and busts, and did it survive both of those regimes, right? So it's persistent over that and across regimes. It's pervasive. It's not just in the U.S. It's not just in some industries or asset classes. It's in the U.S., in almost every country in the world, maybe in different regions. So it's pervasive. Are there any factors that you guys talk about that would be able to withstand that level? Yeah, well, we get, we list five that do no. and one that comes close. The third criteria is robustness. Mm-hmm. So you find that price to book works. Maybe yeah. that's that random outcome where there's, you want to do other tests to make sure other things that are similar also makes, because what you're doing with price to book is you're buying something that's cheap and avoiding something that's expensive or shorting it. So why shouldn't price to earnings work? It's really a cost of capital story. You want to buy companies that have high cost of capital, so you get the high return for providing that gap. Hmm. Price to cash flow, price to dividends, price to you know EBITDA to enterprise value. There are like, I don't know, 30 different metrics that have been found to work in value. That gives you confidence that you're okay. And by the way, the data shows while we're on this subject, whatever the best metric is, it almost never works better than an ensemble metric that uses multiple ones because they tend to be correlated, but not perfectly so. So you get a diversification benefit through there. So sometimes, let's say price to cash flow work best over the long term. But in some periods, PE works better. In some periods, price to book work. So you get a smoother ride and avoid the ups and downs. Fourth thing is it has to survive transactions costs, so it's implementable, right? And lastly, there better be an intuitive reason for you believing that there's that premium will persist. Could be risk-based, which I prefer because you can't arbitrage risk away. You can shrink a premium with lots of capital coming in, but it should never go away in theory unless you have a bubble that's totally irrational prices like PEs and the NASDAQ 100 in March of 2000. That can't be. It cannot survive. Or it could be behavioral like momentum because the tendency is human behavior doesn't change. And there are limits to arbitrage that prevent sophisticated investors from correcting mispricing. The five criteria or factors that met all of our criteria were market, small, premium, value, profit and quality are similar, and momentum. Low volatility came close, but we didn't put it in the those unique set because low volatility only has generated a premium when it's been in the value regime, meaning they're low volatility and also cheap. So low volatility only predicts future low volatility. So when the markets crash, it will not go down as much, but it only predicts a premium when it's low vol and cheap. When it's expensive, then it still predicts low volatility, 
but you don't get a risk premium. So it didn't meet quite the 100% of our criteria. So I prefer value investing that screens out the high beta stocks, mm -hmm. not value or, or say just buying low beta. I think you get better results. Right. So just to highlight that for everybody, I'll have a link in the show notes to Larry's book, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, The Way Smart Money Invests Today. And I have to admit, I haven't read that one, and I'm going to buy that right now myself, and I need to go through that. But you also reminded me of one of my prior guests, Kim Van, Van Fleet, and he has a book oh, he's called- Great Research. Yeah, High Returns from Low Risk. And what you just described is exactly what he- does that he describes in the book, or it's similar in the sense that he's first screening for low risk and he splits the market kind of in half and say, okay, what's low, not risk, but let's say volatility. And he takes the low volatility portion of the market and then he says, okay, which one of these are cheap and also using dividend so that he's also getting rid of ultimately companies that aren't producing dividends. Well, and that, what he's really doing, I think, is eliminating companies that aren't profitable. Because yeah. if you're not profitable, you're not paying a dividend. And those companies tend to perform poorly. He's really getting, I think, a substitute profitability screen. So right. you want value with profitability. And then mm. if you add low beta, you know, then I think you've got a good strategy. But now you're shrinking your eligible universe a lot into a small number of stocks. So you sacrifice maybe some diversification. Right. Well, we've had such a great discussion. We've covered so many different things, but the key thing for everybody to remember is to try to avoid mistake number three by thinking, you don't, you don't want to think that I knew it all along. That's the first thing you want to stop that. And when anybody comes to you and they say, I knew it, you have to think, no, they didn't. I didn't know it. You didn't know it. And the second mistake is that remember not to make hasty generalizations from very specific, small sample size things and think that that is going to be predictive of the future. I told you the story of Jeremy Newsom and how he and his father thought that that one first time, as Larry said, that's the worst when your first investment is terrible. So remember about small sample size. Is there anything else you'd add to that before we wrap up? Yeah, Larry? I would just say this to give it, I'm a big believer in using anecdotes that I think are helpful because people remember stories, not facts, yep. <laughs> right? So if you want one story that combines these two mistakes, think of the name Elaine Gazzarelli. Do you remember what she was famous for? I don't she remember predicted that. literally like right before it happened. She was a money manager at Lehman, if my Shearson Lehman, and she predicted the 87 crash just before the market crash. In which was the flash crash. Which was the first flash crash, if right. you will, right? Market because of the insurance schemes that were there that were based upon options, you know, delta trading and stuff. So, so she was then left, formed her own firm and everything, right? No one had asked what Elaine Gazzarelli's track record was before that, right? And ever, you know, but she was this genius. You had that small sample of one. She went on to have one of the worst track records as a money manager of anybody over the next like decade. Failed one place, went another. But you have this 
recency bias. You have this, I knew it, it was predictable, it was certain, right? And you have this small sample. You know, all of these are biases. We're just human beings and we're subjective. So you have to try to rein yourself in. And the way to do that is to know your investment history and keep that diary every time you make a forecast, whether it's about sports or investing, write it down and then grade yourself. Did you get a plus or a minus? And the odds are pretty good that you'll end up about zero. <laughs> and if you and that's wanna... before your transactions cost, because you made a bet the bookie's taking 5% of the money <laughs> or more. That's, that's a critical part. And for those that want to hear another story about the 1987 flash crash, you can go to episode 289, where you can listen to Jim O'Shaughnessy, who is the author of What Works on Wall Street, where he talks another about- Another great book, by the way. A fantastic book. And he basically talks about having a put position on the market just before the flash crash. And what did he do? He got out of the position just before the flash crash. He would have made a huge amount of money, but he didn't do it. So there we are. A lot of anecdotes. And I'm going to wrap up today. And first of all, thank you, Larry. That's such a great and valuable discussion. That's a wrap on another great discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.